Father, we thank you for your great love for us that is fully demonstrated in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. As we come to him through the word this morning, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Give us the ability to see Jesus, to hear his voice. Give us the desire and the ability to follow and obey him as our good shepherd. We ask, Father, for your glory and for our freedom and joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so Jesus has been talking about faith, not faux faith, but authentic faith. And in our gospel this lesson, this gospel lesson this morning, Jesus talks about authentic leadership, authentic spiritual leadership, not faux spiritual leadership, authentic spiritual leadership. And as you heard, Once again, Jesus uses the name of God to teach that when it comes to spiritual leadership, real, true spiritual leadership, he is the great I am. He is God who is the great spiritual leader. And he does this in a particular way. Jesus does so by telling a parable, a parable, a story that uses a familiar subject to illustrate a spiritual truth. And in this case, Jesus draws on the common everyday understanding of shepherding. Jesus is talking about shepherding and all of the metaphors that go with shepherding. This parable is chock full of metaphors, shepherds, sheep, pen, gate, watchmen, thieves, robbers, false shepherds, hired hands, good shepherd. What does it all mean? Jesus is sharing this parable, is teaching this parable in order to help people, to help people then, to help us now understand who he is, what he has come to do, and how he's going to do that. We'll see here uh, in verses 1 through 6, Jesus is saying that he is the true shepherd of Israel. In verses 7 through 10, Jesus is saying that he's the only way to God. And in verses 11 through 21, Jesus is saying that he's the savior of the world and that he's going to save the world by dying for it. This is what's underneath and behind the parable of the shepherd and the sheep. I think it's really exciting. I want to call a timeout for a second. And uh, ask everybody to kind of shake their hands, move their shoulders, kind of loosen up, okay? Because even if you've heard this passage 20 times, even if you've read it and studied it 50 times, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit is going to show you something new, something fresh, and something really encouraging about who Jesus is, what he's done for you, and how you can humbly and gratefully respond to him today. But before, before we break this down, it's really important, it's, it's essential that we understand the context within which Jesus is speaking. 
And the context for what Jesus is teaching is found in the previous chapter. It's what Edmund began to touch on last week. In order to understand the parable of the shepherd and the sheep, we first have to understand how people are responding to his healing of the man born blind. So I want to step back for a moment to John chapter 9 in your blue Bible. This is on page 895. Okay, remember... Jesus spits on the ground, he makes mud with his saliva, and he spreads the mud over the blind man's eyes. This is how he heals him. It's similar to how he formed Adam. Jesus' miracle is an act of recreation. In the mode of the miracle, Jesus demonstrates that he's the pre-existent, co-eternal God of creation. And that he has the capacity to take a man born blind, one who has been separated from God, and not only give him sight, but recreate him in his own image for the purposes of God. But look what happens next, beginning in um, John 19, verse 18. The Pharisees hate it. So they go on the attack again. They try to get someone to accuse Jesus of being a sinner because he heals on the Sabbath. Don't miss the irony. Because by attempting to delegitimize the healing of the man born blind, they expose their own spiritual blindness. That's what's going on here. And and they begin by questioning the man's parents who are like, hey, go ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. And he actually will speak for himself. He's got a really great testimony. You should go ask him, not us. But, but there's also emotion behind this. This isn't sarcasm. This is fear. They're afraid of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. How do we know? Look at verse 22. His parents feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. A growing number of Jews, including this man's parents, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they're afraid to associate with Jesus because they're afraid of how the religious leaders will treat them if they do. You see how ugly this is getting? So the Pharisees leave the man's parents and they go back to the man born blind who has been healed and they question him again. This is their second attempt to get him to change his testimony and now to discredit Jesus. But it doesn't work. Why? Because he's been healed. And the love and the power of Jesus displaces any fear in this man any fear of what the religious leaders might do to him. So what does he do? He defends Jesus saying, Hey guys, I don't know about this whole sinner stuff, but I know this. I was blind, but now I see. And that guy did it. And then it gets really good. I mean, this gets really good with new and clear vision. The healed man goes for it. He goes for it. He says to the Pharisees, hey guys, do you want to become one of his disciples too? (laughs) He goes from being a condemned blind man to a healed witness for the Messiah. Don't you love that? The Pharisees don't. 
The Pharisees are enraged. And with great ugliness and condescension, they lowered it over him. Look at verse 34. They cast him out of the synagogue. Wow. The religious leaders make it clear. If you believe Jesus is the Messiah, if you become one of his disciples, that you will be kicked out of the synagogue. You'll be cut off from the presence of God. You'll be cut off from the people of God. And you will no longer have accesses to the privileges of God's covenant people. This is why people are afraid. And this is the context within which Jesus speaks. We've got to understand that. The people are afraid. They want to follow Jesus, but the religious leaders are harassing them and threatening them not to. So when you're spiritually harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, what do you need? You need a shepherd, not a false shepherd. You need a true shepherd. You need a good shepherd, an authentic spiritual leader who will speak truth into error and replace fear with his love. And so Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable of a shepherd and his sheep. It's a parable of hope that explains who he is and what he has come to do and how exactly he's going to do that. So let's break a dinner. If you'll turn to John chapter 10 in your blue Bibles, that's on page 896. Verses 1 through 6 are all about Jesus being the true shepherd of Israel. And in order to teach this truth, Jesus is going to use a handful of these vivid metaphors. And each one is really packed with spiritual meaning. The first is the sheep pen. All right. Anybody seen a sheep pen? Anybody know what a sheep pen looks like, particularly in first century Israel? It's a, it's a corral kind of type thing where all the sheep are kept. And the kind of sheep pen that Jesus is picturing here is the kind that's found in cities and villages. It's fairly large, large enough to hold several flocks of sheep at the same time. It's public. In other words, it's shared by several shepherds and their flocks at the same time. And this kind of sheep pen is made usually with rock walls and it has a gate. And in the evening when the shepherds return from the fields, they lead their flocks into this kind of community sheep pen for the night. And what Jesus is doing is he's using this metaphor to explain his covenant with Israel. The Jews are God's people, the sheep of his pasture, those who belong to him. And the sheep pen is a picture of being safe and secure under his covenant provision and protection and all of its privileges. But as the parable goes on, unfortunately, there are false shepherds. The sheep don't belong to the false shepherds. So the false shepherd doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate. He sneaks around and jumps the fence. That's what false shepherds do. And in saying this, Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees. 
He's admonishing the religious leaders who have condemned and kicked out the healed blind man from the synagogue. He's looking them in the eye and he's saying, you are false shepherds. He's telling a parable. But that's what's going on. And by correlation, he's speaking to all the religious leaders of Israel. He's admonishing them for being false shepherds. And he goes on. He says they're like thieves. They disguise themselves, break into God's house that is not their own, and attempt to steal and mistreat God's people who do not belong to them. And even worse, Jesus says the Pharisees and religious leaders are like robbers. You know the difference between a thief and a robber is? A robber carries weapons and uses force and doesn't mind hurting or even killing people in the process. Okay, this is not meek and mild baby Jesus. This is the pre-existent creator, co-equal with God, grown up, bearded ruler of the universe, Jesus. And he's speaking directly to the poor foe spiritual leadership over his people. And then by contrast, he teaches that there is a true shepherd. And that the sheep belong to the true shepherd. And so the true shepherd enters the sheep pen by the gate. He knows the sheep and the sheep know him and the sheep loves him, love him because he loves the sheep. And here Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying that he is the true shepherd of Israel. He knows his people intimately, always has, always will. He knows their lives, their joys, their trials and sorrows, their stumbling and wondering and their needs and hopes and dreams. He has always been their shepherd. He knows them and he loves them. He holds them in his heart and he keeps them on his mind. What Jesus is saying as the true shepherd is that he is presenting himself to Israel. He's presenting himself as the true shepherd of Israel, the authentic spiritual leader who comes to call out from the Jews those whom God has given him. Picture this. From out of the sheep pen of the old covenant, Jesus, the Messiah, the true shepherd of Israel, calls out the Jews into a new covenant, a new covenant based on a relationship with him that fulfills the old covenant and will last for eternity. And Jesus teaches this because this is what it means to be sheep. This is what it means to be the true flock of God, following him as the true shepherd of souls. True sheep trust and follow out behind the true shepherd. They recognize him, they follow him, they understand his words, and they obey him. They love him and trust him, and his presence means provision and protection no matter how tough things get. 
Jesus is talking about the man born blind that he has just healed, a Jew who has encountered and believed in him with authentic faith and has become one of his true disciples. And by correlation, Jesus is talking to all the religious leaders and all the people of Israel. He's offering and inviting all the Jews to see his life, to believe that he is the Messiah, and to put his teaching into practice, and to follow him with authentic faith as his true disciples, and that by doing so, they will find life in his name. And finally, we see here the metaphor of the watchman, who helps make this transition into the new fold of God. The watchman knows the true shepherd from the false shepherds. He's the one who opens the gate for the uh, the shepherd to enter the sheep pen and lead out the sheep that belong to him. And the watchman and the shepherd uh, are seen here in this parable as a team. They work together. The watchman does everything to promote the person and work of the shepherd. And the watchman helps the uh, shepherd's uh, sheep see and recognize and hear and follow the true shepherd out. Okay, so if Jesus is the true shepherd in the parable, who's the watchman? The watchman is the Holy Spirit. And no one can follow Jesus without the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit helping them to do so. You ever thought about that when you read the parable of the sheep and the shepherd? Verses 1 through 6, Jesus is teaching that he's the long-awaited Messiah, the true shepherd of Israel who leads the Jews out of the old covenant under the direction of the law and the prophets and into the new covenant under the direction of him and the Holy Spirit. That's what he's teaching. It's so beautiful. It's also a really radical claim. And here's the thing. He doesn't stop there. He doubles down. Look at verses 7 through 10. Jesus is saying that he's the only way to God. He uses um, a different metaphor of the sheep pen this time. He still uses the metaphor of a sheep pen, but Jesus has in mind um, a different kind of sheep pen. He's not talking about the rock wall in a city or a village sheep pen. He's talking about the kind of sheep pen a shepherd uses when he's outside in the fields overnight. Out in the hill country overnight, the sheep are corralled and kept in ravines and small canyons. Or as we say in South Texas, arroyos, right? With walls tall enough to keep them from jumping out and with only one entrance. There's only one way in and one way out. And so naturally, these uh, ravines or, or canyons or arroyos, they don't have a gate. So the shepherd became the gate. During the night, the shepherd would lay across the opening and become the gate himself. And so access in or out was only through the shepherd. He was the gate. He was the door. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I am the gate. I am the door for the sheep. This is where Jesus uses the name of God and associates it with himself. I am He's saying that he is Jehovah and adds to it a descriptor being the gate or the door for the sheep. Jesus is saying that he is God 
and that he is the only way to the Father, the only way to be saved from sin and death and the devil, the only way to new and eternal life, the only way to become part of God's faithful and forever flock is through faith in him. And that's significant because Jesus is reminding us that the way to God is not a formula. It's not a methodology. It's not about morality. The way to God is a person. Jesus is the way. And no one comes to the Father except through him because he is the gate and he is the door. He alone grants access into the presence of God. And Jesus emphasizes this in verse 8. In warning against false shepherds again. False shepherds claim a different way to God. A better way to God. They promote religion and works righteousness and worldly philosophy and feel good psychology and all sorts of unsound teaching that opposes the truth of God and encourages the people of God to follow their own desires and whatever their itching ears want to hear. It wasn't just happening then. It continues to happen today. They claim to know a different and better gateway to God. But what Jesus says emphatically is that there is not one. And he reiterates in verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And there's another way that Jesus makes an emphasis In verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So Jesus is making it clear that his mission and ministry begins with the Jews but expands beyond them. His invitation to spiritual leadership, his invitation to himself is inclusive of whoever. Whoever. The point Jesus is making is that anyone may enter the kingdom of God through him. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So regardless of who you are or where you come from, Jesus' invitation is that all who repent and believe in him can be saved. And that means the call of Jesus is not restricted It's not restricted on the basis of race or education or social position or wealth or good deeds or moral achievements or anything else. And that's really encouraging because that means there is absolutely no reason why you or your family or your neighbors or your classmates or your coworkers or all of the people in your spheres of influence should not be among the number of those who God draws to himself through the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. It's an invitation for everyone. And what's even better is that there's no complicated course to follow. If Jesus had compared himself to a wall, then we should have to climb over it. It might be hard work. I don't like climbing walls. I hate going to camps and doing that wall thing. If he compared himself to a long, dark passageway, then we have to kind of feel our way along and it might be scary. We, we might not even want to try. 
But Jesus doesn't compare himself to a wall. He doesn't compare himself to a passageway. He compares himself to a door. And a door could be entered easily and instantly walked through. The point being that we must enter. We must walk through. He's a door, an open door for everyone who repents and believes in him and walks through. It's not difficult for us. The difficult work's been done by him. What's left for us is to identify his work and walk through him to receive all of its benefits. And that takes faith, authentic faith that believes and trusts and obeys and surrenders everything to who Jesus is that we might receive everything that he invites us to be. And so it raises the question, if Jesus is the true shepherd of the sheep, the only door through which we can enter into a restored and eternal relationship with God, then how exactly does he open it for us? And this is what Jesus gets at in verses 11 through 21. Jesus is the savior of the world who saves the world by dying for the sins of the world. Now back in the day, and I'm sure... A shepherd would tell you the same today. But any shepherd who dies for his sheep is beyond question considered a good shepherd. And Jesus is called the good shepherd because he lays down his life for his sheep. And greater love has no one than this. Jesus' death is not an accident or a tragedy. I know... We tend to think of it as a tragedy by the name Good Friday, which becomes confusing. My my son, my seven-year-old son, we were reading the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, several weeks ago, and he says, Dada, what should we read? And I said, I don't know. What should should we read? He said, well, let's read about uh, the death of Jesus, about Jesus on the cross. And I said, okay, that sounds good. Let's read that. And he said, "Uh, isn't that called Black Friday? (laughs) He kind of got it confused. I had to explain to him that Black Friday is about consumerism. Good Friday is about salvation. It's not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's the very reason for which Jesus is born. As the angels tell Joseph, you're going to give him the name Jesus because why? He will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. Savior. It's what the apostle Paul affirms in the letter to the church in Rome. Listen to this, what he emphasizes. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, unrighteous, far from God, Jesus died for us. We're all sinners. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And as sinful sheep, we all deserve to die, both physically and spiritually. That's what God promised in the garden. And he will be faithful to complete his promise unless he does something for us that we cannot do. Namely, 
giving us Jesus who willingly died in our place and on our behalf as our substitute that we might be set free from sin and its penalty in order to enjoy a relationship with God and serve him forever as he intended in the first place. I love how Peter puts this in 1 Peter 2. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But now, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Hallelujah. And so very powerfully in verse 15, Jesus drops the image of a metaphorical shepherd. He no longer says the good shepherd lays down his life. What does Jesus say? I lay down my life. And in verse 16, he wants to make sure that everybody knows they're included. He reemphasizes that he's come to enlarge God's flock. The other sheep is a reference to the fact that Jesus doesn't just come to die for the sins of the Jews. God said, love the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus comes to die for the sins of the whole world and his role as the good shepherd includes the Gentiles too. So he's not just referring to all the believers who are standing there with him. He's referring to all believers from every tribe and tongue and nation in every generation over all time who have, do, and ever will repent and believe in him, including us here today. This is what Paul emphasizes to his young apprentice and church planter, Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. That is a beautiful act and demonstration of love. And the greatest invitation we'll ever hear or receive. But there's something even more. Something that's often overlooked. Something that's incredibly important to realize here. An enlarged and healthy, saved, provided for, protected spiritual flock means an honored and a pleased owner of the flock. Look at verses 17 and 18. You see why Jesus dies for us? Because the father charges him. Because the father commands him to do so. And this gives a higher meaning to Jesus' death. Because Jesus doesn't primarily die for our salvation. Jesus dies primarily to honor, obey, and glorify the Father. Above all else, 
by laying down his life for us, Jesus shows his love for the Father. Remember, God had been terribly dishonored by the first man, Adam, who put himself before God and so corrupted all of us who descended from him. On the contrary, Jesus shows himself as a better Adam. He honored God by showing that at least one man thought more of God's glory than anything else. At least one man showed that obeying God's will meant more to him than any personal desire or ambition. It's what Paul emphasizes to the church in Philippi. Jesus, who being very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is so humbling when we realize that God doesn't do all things primarily for our benefit, but for his own. God does all things for his glory. And Jesus' death is for the glory of God. And secondarily, it's really good for us, by the way. And our salvation does glorify God. But it's Jesus' obedience that glorifies God first and foremost. This is the difference between a God-centered perspective and a me-centered perspective. And when God gives you a God-centered perspective, it changes how you view the world. It changes how you view God. It changes how you view yourself. And it changes how you view the people around you. It's revolutionarily refreshing. And so all, all of this really means something for us as we come forward to the Lord's table. And we hold out our hands and receive his bread. And we we dip that bread in the cup and remember his death and resurrection. It means something for who he is and who we are and how we respond gratefully. It means that, that we know Jesus and his voice. This is what it means for us to be the flock of God, the church, the company of all those who recognize and hear and obey the voice of the good shepherd and receive his provision and comfort and protection. Do you know the voice of the good shepherd? How how do we know we know the voice of the good shepherd? Has anybody heard the story of the Indian in New York? Oh, good. I want to tell you a story of the Indian in New York. There's a story about a man who befriends an American Indian and takes him to visit his home in New York City. And as they're walking through Times Square, the Indian says, hmm, I hear a cricket. And his friend, this Yankee, thinks he's crazy. How can you possibly hear a cricket in the midst of all the noise in Times Square? And they continue to walk on. And as they walk a little further, the Indian bends over and reaches under a trash receptacle and gently picks up a cricket and shows it 
to his New York friend. And his New York friend smiles and says, how did you hear that? And the Indian said, you hear what you tune your ears to. And he gently puts the cricket back down. And then he reaches in to his pocket for some coins. And he pulls out that change. And he throws that change on the sidewalk in front of him. And a dozen or so people in the area all turn and they look at that change on the ground. And they go to it. And the Indian just smiled. And the New Yorker understood. We hear what we tune our ears to. So how do we hear and recognize the voice of God? We tune the ears of our heart to the word of God. To Jesus as he is found and revealed through the scriptures. And this is how you know that it is the voice of your good shepherd and not your own flesh and not the voice of the evil one. It is the voice of the good shepherd when it is consistent with the character of God, when it's consistent with the word of God, and when it's consistent with who Jesus dies and raises and redeems you to be. So if you hear a voice telling you to do something that's inconsistent with who God is or what his word says, you can be assured that's not your good shepherd. But even as challenging and as tough and as convicting as it is, if it lines up with who God is and what it says in his word and who you're created and redeemed to be, listen and hear and obey with authentic faith because that is the trustworthy, life-giving voice of your good shepherd. And so as we come to him this morning, through the bread and the wine, we might ask, Lord, would you retune my heart? To your voice. It also means that when we come to him. We come to him knowing that he knows us. And there is a lot of comfort. Being known by God. It's comforting because we all long to be known. Like friends know one another. Parents know their children. Children know their parents. There's a special knowledge between a husband and a wife. But we're all created to be known and to know. And we all have this desire because this desire is put in us by God primarily for himself. And it's true that our hearts are restless until we experience the great comfort of being known by God and knowing him in Christ Jesus. And so... It's not just that he knows us. It's that he knows us and accepts us. It's how we begin our worship gathering every Sunday. Professing that nothing in our lives is hidden from the Lord. Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open. All desires are known. And from whom no secrets are hid. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our temptations. He knows our failures. He knows the good that we neglect even when, it, when it's within our reach. He knows the evil that we pursue at length. It's all before his eyes. And this is the beautiful, gracious, merciful, good news of the gospel. God knows and he still accepts us. He still loves us. And that nothing can separate us from his love for us. 
And there's no greater comfort in all the universe than this. Except one. He knows us. He loves us. And he dies for us. In his great love for us, Jesus lays down his life for us. If he didn't uh, know us exactly as we are with all of our negative attitudes and ugly thoughts and hurtful words and jealousy and pride and greed and all the ways we're prone to wonder. And I know I'm not just speaking about me. If Jesus doesn't know all these things about us, then we might fear that some new sin would discourage him from accepting us and somehow weaken his love for us. But it's simply not the case because one time for all, completely it is finished through his death on our behalf. This is what Paul emphasizes to the church in Ephesus. You were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the evil one, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We were by nature sinners deserving of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Come on, people. That, there, that's an, there's an amen there. That is good news. And so as, as we come to the table, it's not just asking to retune our hearts to hear his voice. It's not asking just to receive a download, an outpouring of his lavish love for us. It is also coming forward with humble, joyful, reverent gratitude that he's given his life that we might live. He's led us away from competing voices and lesser allegiances. He's led us out of paganism, out of religion, out of moralism, out of materialism, and into his comforting, saving, life-giving presence for all eternity. Do you know that about your good shepherd? He leads us out of error, into truth, out of sin, into righteousness, out of brokenness, into wholeness, out of isolation, into the community of his church, out of death, into life. Do you know your good shepherd? And how wonderful it is to be a part of his flock. His promise is to be with you always, to never leave you or forsake you, but always to pursue you because that's what a good shepherd does. He's never going to give up on you. He's never going to quit the good work that he's begun in you, but patiently and consistently with steadfast love, he's going to be faithful to you and perfect you on the day of your resurrection. Do you know how good the good shepherd is. May we fall at his feet and surrender to his love and experience the abundance of his comfort and provision and protection that is ours 
as the sheep of his hand. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And so as we come to the table, would you show us once again that you were the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant and make us perfect at every good work to do your will working in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.